Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden. Today, I'm introducing Larry Ostola as one of our new hosts for this season. Larry will be interviewing David A. Charters on his book, Canadian Military Intelligence, Operations and Evolution from the October Crisis to the War in Afghanistan. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to David Charters about his history of Canadian military intelligence from the October crisis to the war in Afghanistan. David Charters is a retired professor of history and a senior fellow of the Gregg Centre at the University of New Brunswick. He's author of many publications on the study of intelligence services and activities. His most recent book, Canadian Military Intelligence, Operations and Evolution from the October Crisis to the War in Afghanistan was published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. David, many thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking you, David, why you felt it was important to write a book about Canadian military intelligence and specifically the period from the FLQ crisis to the war in Afghanistan. What were some of the questions that interested you? Well, first of all, let me say that the the impetus for the, uh, the book actually came from the Canadian Military Intelligence Association, and uh, they approached me. I was interested because I had been working in this field uh, for many years and published in the, in the field extensively from the 1970s on. And the uh, I was interested because in, in intelligence history and in intelligence studies, I, I think an over, overwhelming amount of attention is devoted to secret services, particularly the CIA and the KGB and British intelligence. Military intelligence tends to be a bit of an orphan. So that's, that's an area that attracted my attention and why I thought it was worth exploring. So I'm sure, as you may know, David, the Champlain Society is dedicated to bringing Canada's documentary history to life. And so I have to ask you a question about your sources. Now, military intelligence, by definition, is sensitive. uh, But just how challenging was it for you to get the sources you needed to write the book? And sort of secondary question is, is Canada different in that respect from the United Kingdom and the United States? First, I'd have to say, yes, it was fairly challenging. Um, the uh, Canadian intelligence documents and so on are, are, tend to be heavily classified at the secret level or above, top secret, top secret, special access. So there was a limited amount of documentation available. Some more came available as, as the project went on. But uh, certainly the, uh, the challenge of getting access to documents was one of the major hurdles to, to overcome. I got around that to some extent by using interviews, but... Um, the, the book is predicated on the, on the assumption that there's much more of the story left to tell, that this is only really a partial view of the, of the, uh, of the subject. As for where Canada deals with secret information, it's, it's a challenging process. Um, compared to the United, the United States, by comparison to Canada, leaks like a sieve. <laughs> 
British British intelligence, on the other hand, has a more organized approach to releasing information. Uh, but even there, uh, information regarding the Secret Services tends to be classified for long periods, 30 years, 50 years, sometimes indefinitely. Our access process is, in a, in a nutshell, broken. And, uh, for example, it took me two and a half years to get access to one set of documents. So it was a really challenging, tough process to get access to the information I needed. I did fortunately have help from the association who put me in touch with people who could provide some insights where there are big big gaps in the story. Yeah, two and a half years would be quite some time. But let me build on that and just ask you, many listeners will not be overly familiar with the world of military intelligence and the way it's used in military operations. And so I wonder if you could give us a broad sense of what military intelligence is, how it's gathered, and some examples of how it's actually used in the field. Sure. The term military intelligence refers to the organizations and processes that are deployed to collect, analyze, and disseminate information that can be used by commanders or their senior political decision makers to help them make choices about what to do in a given situation, whether it's on the battlefield or, if you like, at the grand strategic view where Canada or, or another country is going to deploy their, their military assets. Uh, it's collected by a range of means. Uh, perhaps in, in my book, perhaps the most consistent um, collection process was patrolling by troops in the areas that they're responsible for, but also observation by ships and aircraft, interception of communication, interception of communications, that's signals intelligence and electronic intelligence, satellite photography, and human sources, which can refer to local populations or uh, specifically recruited agents. And uh, these means were used in various operations that I discussed in the book. For example, the October and Oka crises, Bosnian peacekeeping, uh, selecting bombing targets in the Gulf War and the Kosovo air campaigns and breaking up insurgent networks and preventing IED attacks in Afghanistan. It's obviously extremely important, but I wanted to ask you, early on in the book, you paint a pretty sobering picture of the constant reviews, reorganizations, and budget reductions that the Canadian Armed Forces underwent starting in the mid-1960s, and really of the tension that exists between trying to resource the capabilities that you need within the confines of government defense policy. And so how did all of that play into military intelligence? Well, particularly, I spent quite a bit of time in the book discussing that at, at the, if you like, the national uh, defense intelligence level, as opposed to down in the weeds. Uh, and what we saw there was a, a fairly negative impact on productivity and quality of the work, because there were insufficient people to do everything that was needed to be done. Long delays in adopting computers for data management, for example. Uh, lack of uh, UAVs, that's uninhabited aerial vehicles for surveillance until the Afghan war. And deployed contingents were limited by budget and personnel constraints that really didn't reflect operational realities. In many cases, they needed more people to be deployed in the field, but they either weren't available or they weren't allowed to deploy that many because the government would put a, a, a ceiling on the number of people who could be deployed. It's also important to remember that the organization, the Canadian Military Intelligence, was represented only about 1% of the personnel in the Canadian forces. And this small number of people had to cover 
a whole variety of, of uh, tasks from in places like Ottawa, but they were also deployed in uh, places like NORAD and NATO headquarters, liaison officers in London and Washington, bases uh, and units. So it was a small number of people spread very thin. So getting down to some of the specific examples that you provide in your book, you point to the FLQ crisis as a precursor of what was to come in terms of military intelligence. And then you go on to examine the involvement of the Canadian forces, as you mentioned a few moments ago, in the Oka crisis, the FLQ crisis, the Persian Gulf, the Balkans, and finally Afghanistan. How would you describe the evolution of our military intelligence capabilities over the years? Has it been a case of slow but steady evolution, or or were there really specific events that really moved the needle in terms of military intelligence? I would say uh, it evolved more in kind of fits and starts and not not according to a predetermined plan, that's for sure. Uh, I, I started off with the October crisis because the military intelligence role there was minimalist, but that stand that provided, if you like, a baseline for looking how, how things developed later on. Uh, the one thing that stands out from the uh, 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 October crisis is the uh, military's real, realization that they were going to have to uh, deal with uh, intelligence as an interagency process involving police forces and, and security services and so on. Uh, but also... Um, the importance of human sources. They didn't get much into that in in the October crisis, but it would become more important later on. Um, there were a, a number of things that kind of forced the pace of uh, of uh, intelligence development. Um, in particular, the uh, the uh, peacekeeping operations in the Balkans, particularly in the U- UN period, uh, it became quickly apparent that there was insufficient. Uh, collection assets in in the Balkans and the UN UN guidelines on using intelligence were very restrictive and discouraged the uh, the peacekeeping forces from developing the kinds of human sources that uh, would have really ma- made a difference. Um, they got around that to some extent uh, by relying on uh, non UN uh, non UN assets. But that had to be done very carefully, and the information couldn't necessarily be shared widely. What was behind the reluctance of the United Nations in terms of human intelligence? It's been a standard operating procedure in the UN that uh, intrusive means of intelligence collection would not be used by UN forces because of the sensitivities of, uh, of many of the member nations who often found themselves on the receiving end of, uh, of those kinds of means by the major powers. So the UN mandated that those could not be used, and in fact, even the term intelligence was was not uh, was not applied to the kinds of information that the UN forces collected. After after the experience of uh, of um, the UN in uh, Bosnia, when NATO took over in 1996 to continue the the peacekeeping and peace enforcement process, many more assets were brought. Uh, brought to bear because NATO wasn't constrained the same way that the UN forces were. 
One of the things that struck me as I was going through the book was the importance of boots on the ground. You were actually referred to this earlier when you were speaking. And the intelligence can be gathered by troops engaging in activities such as patrolling or reconnaissance, the establishment of checkpoints, and engaging in establishing relations with local civilians. So we have a great many high-tech resources at our disposal, but it is fair to say that uh, the type of on-the-ground intelligence gathering that you mentioned in your book uh, remains fundamental. Absolutely. Uh, that that remained consistent all the way through uh, in the operations where, where there was a ground force deployed. Uh, patrolling and observation posts uh, by deployed troops were really the primary means of collecting, collecting intelligence. And patro- patrolling, a term that was uh, used uh, was social patrolling, which really meant getting in amongst the people and talking to them and finding out what they knew to the extent that they would actually talk to local, uh, uh, the, the local population would actually talk to the troops, some would and some wouldn't. But patrolling and observation posts and uh, surveillance from uh, uh, checkpoints and observation posts by vehicles and so on, were those were really the primary collection means for those operations where they were actually on the ground. Taking it up to a bit of a different level now, in 1991, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet threat ended. And in your book, you write that the strategic calculus that had driven Canadian defense intelligence all but vanished overnight. So what types of changes in the approach of the Canadian Armed Forces to military intelligence resulted from what was a massive change? It was a massive change and uh, it had a dramatic effect on intelligence during the 1990s. basically a loss of capability uh, because the sense was, well, we're not going to have to fight a war anytime soon, so we can we can downsize the forces. We can, if you like, spend the peace dividend on other things. Uh, and certainly from the mid-1990s to the end of the decade, uh, there were serious financial constraints and limits on what the, uh, the forces could do. And that impacted the intelligence side as much as as much as it did the the forces themselves. So uh, there was a loss of capability in 1999. The decision was taken to uh, to get rid of the uh, divisional intelligence company, which had proved its real value during the Oka crisis. So that was a loss of deployable capability, which we came to regret uh, once we be- became involved in Afghanistan, and we had to ramp up a new capability. A few moments ago, David, you referenced the importance of human intelligence, the importance of uh, troops on the ground interacting with local populations. And at one point in your book, when you were writing about peace enforcement in Kosovo in the 1990s, you provide a, a really great picture of just how complicated intelligence considerations were as they came into play for Canadian troops on the ground. While on the surface, at one level, you might think, boy, the question of intelligence revolves around weapons and troop numbers. It really was about a lot more than that, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, the Canadians in, in uh, Kosovo, once, once they were on the ground, found themselves conducting surveillance and, uh, and intelligence collection on a wide range of, uh, of targets, including the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was supposed to disband itself after the conflict, uh, the local populations, uh, the uh, Serbian, Serbian paramilitaries, which occasionally infiltrated across the border from Serbia, uh, the Russian forces, which were deployed as part of the uh, uh, Kosovo force, but in fact were allying themselves considerably with the, with the Serbs. Um, 
So there were multiple targets. There was an organized crime element, which you wouldn't normally think of as part of the military intelligence task, but it, because it funded a lot of the paramilitary activity that was going on, it was something they had to watch. Well, I, I think at one point you even mentioned the involvement of Canadian troops uh, from a battalion of infantry in a raid on a bank. Could you tell us about that one? <laughs> yeah, that was in Bosnia in uh, sometime early 2000s, I think. Uh, that was a case, it, it was an interesting case from an intelligence point of view because it actually arose from a, a counterintelligence operation against Croatian intelligence that was operating inside Bosnia. It was related to the political controversy over the what they, was referred to as the third entity. When the Dayton Accords were, were drafted, uh, the Serbs got a portion of Bosnia and the Bosniaks got a portion of Bosnia, but the Croats didn't get anything and they felt that they had carried a heavy fighting load and were entitled to a portion of the if, of the country, if you like. And uh, it was their efforts covertly to subvert the process and lay the groundwork for a third entity that caught the attention of NATO counterintelligence. And what they found was that one of the banks was being used as a... Uh, as a conduit for funding the, the secessionist movement. And this led to a decision on the part of the Office of the High Representative to allocate uh, uh, NATO forces to, uh, to raid the banks and seize the records and some of the funds and so on. So this was carried out uh, by the Parachute Company of uh, 3rd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment. Uh, and... Uh, it's, it reads it, something like uh, the uh, the movie Kelly's Heroes, but it was all on the up and all on the up and up. It was a legitimate operation. So, uh, from two thousand and two to two thousand and four, uh, uh, David, something called the Defense Intelligence Review took place. Uh, what was it, and why was it important in terms of the direction that Canadian military intelligence would take? It was a a review that really was long overdue. Uh, that. Uh, the military intelligence processes and organizations were dispersed across a wide range of responsibilities and units and offices within the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Forces. And there was no single authority up to, up to about 2004 that was responsible for all of them. So there was a certain degree of uh, overlap and duplication and lack of, lack of uh, authority and responsibility. So that's that was the groundwork for for the defense intelligence review, since that they had to rationalize the assets that they had. So it was a two-year review process, and the result was the appointment of a single chief of defense intelligence to oversee and be responsible for allocating resources and assigning tasks and so on for the uh, for the forces uh, for the intelligence forces, but also. Uh, increase in rank to give the give the the CDI uh, a uh, if you like a, a stronger voice at the higher levels of uh, of defense planning and uh, and uh, speaking to the government as well, but also a lot of uh, reorganization of assets and particularly looking at the analytical side, defense analysis for the production of intelligence within DND. And that was very important. So the, the appointment of uh, new people to oversee those kinds of tasks was was really quite important. So I guess it wouldn't be an overstatement then to say that th these were really some of the foundational pieces arising out of the review that would help us 
in places like Afghanistan. Absolutely. The, uh, the first chief of defense intelligence made the, made this point that, uh, that what was learned in Afghanistan was applied to the defense intelligence review and what was learned in the review was applied in Afghanistan. So there was new capabilities, new organizations, new technologies uh, moved into, into Afghanistan, and particularly from 2005 on. And uh, also a great deal of, uh, if you like, integration of assets and, uh, assets and capabilities in the field with uh, capabilities and uh, assets back in Canada. The, the development of, uh, uh, of greater interoperable communications facilitated the movement of information back and forth to a degree that had not been the case in earlier operations. Well, I'd like to continue on the theme of integration, but specifically integration with our allies and with our partners. Uh, in the Persian Gulf, in the Balkans and Afghanistan, Canada worked very closely with allies and coalition partners, including the United States and NATO, and the group of countries known as the Five Eyes. And at one point, you characterized the massive flow of American intelligence as drinking from a fire hose. And so how did this collaboration with our partners and our allies affect our own intelligence efforts? It varied from uh, operation to operation and the and to the extent that each in each operation, what the Canadians were involved with and who they were, who they were collaborating with. Um, the uh, exchange of information through the Five Eyes Network, which involves Canada, the United States, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, is really one of the central pillars of our, our uh, intelligence collection capabilities and, uh, and our ability to analyze what's going on out in the world. This was, a, if you like, a, a value-added capability out in the field. Uh, in places like Bosnia and Afghanistan, if you were part of the Five Eyes or part of the NATO circle of intelligence sharing groups, you had a, a real um, uh, leg up on what was going on because you would have access to sources that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, it didn't always work smoothly. Uh, it didn't all the assets weren't always available. Um, the Canadians didn't always have top priority for say, uh, satellite photography or aerial reconnaissance or the drones, uh, that sort of thing. But when we had it, it, it did make a difference. So it was uh, intelligence sharing is really one of the cornerstones of the Canadian intelligence experience, not just the military intelligence, but our national intelligence, security intelligence, and so on. Being part of the Five Eyes Network is, is really an asset that you can't put a price on. And is it fair to say, do you think, David, that that cooperation, that collaboration with our partners and our allies, to some extent, drove the development of military intelligence uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces in terms of having the capability to remain the rest of our partners? Yes, it was. A, it was certainly a driver of of, uh, of the development of new capabilities and so on, We're going right back to the late 1960s, where we created a special uh, uh, what's today would be referred to as, as a SCIF or sensitive compartmented information facility. We were receiving uh, aerial photography from, from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency and analyzing it for them. This was in the mid-60s. That kind of uh, sharing has continued. And uh, it was, in fact, the necessity to keep that capability 
that drove us to automation in the 1970s and 80s, because if we wanted to continue to share that, receive that information, we had to be able to talk to the Americans and talk to the British with the technologies they were using. So it did really force our hands. Um, you know, if, we, if, you're, if they're computerizing, you've got to computerize. If you're, if you're not going to do that, you're not going to be able to see what they're seeing. So that was, uh, that was an important driver, and that continued right up to the, to the, the present day. Well, I think that is also a, a good illustration of one of the challenges we were discussing earlier, which is the idea that you have to resource capabilities within the confines of government defense policy. And if you're trying to do it in an environment like the one that you've just described, I'm sure it could have been pretty challenging. Indeed, it was. There was never enough money and there was never enough people to do the do the work. So in many cases, people were doubled or triple tasked and uh, wearing multiple hats at the same time. Uh, but as I say, there was never enough money to do it all. Uh, when forces were deployed overseas, they were often told, you've got this many personnel slots. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to go over in this area, uh, you've got to take some out of that area in order to ba- keep it balanced. At having assistance from the Americans sometimes allowed us to bridge some of those gaps. Uh, it it uh, it meant that we could rely on some of their capabilities to cover some of the gaps in our own. And so turning now to our involvement in the war in Afghanistan, you write that military intelligence expanded in size and scope and that it eventually, and I think this is one of the important points that you raised, it eventually began to drive operations. What, in your view, was the turning point uh, with respect to the importance of military intelligence? And what, if anything, did it have to do with the highly sophisticated intelligence capabilities of our partners, and particularly the United States? And this partly refers to the comments you just made about the need to keep up with our allies and partners. Yeah, it's hard to point to a single uh, incident or a single t- uh, decision that says this is where it all changed you know, uh, for for the better or or uh, or to make it uh, much more capable, uh, the changes really began, I think, in in Bosnia in the in the in the the nineties, both under the UN and but more so under NATO. But when we deployed in Afghanistan, we certainly needed uh, greater collection capabilities and more analytical capabilities, and we did develop those. We did uh, create the all source intelligence centers, which were important. Uh, but also uh, human source collection, uh, which was really important, particularly after 2005 when we got deeply into the counterinsurgency campaign because human sources are your primary source of information in in an insurgency uh, operation. Uh, And the Americans had some capabilities that allowed us to to, uh, become more attuned to the uh, attuned to what was going on on the ground but we developed our own abilities in this area as well in your conclusion you reference a gradual shift in institutional culture within the Canadian armed forces towards accepting the utility of intelligence and i'm wondering what is it that took so long and uh, what were the obstacles to this acceptance was that part and parcel of the struggle for resources within the forces do you think that military intelligence uh, has now arrived uh, in terms of its presence within the forces there was certainly a sea change after the end of the cold war up to that point um military intelligence was to a large extent marginalized uh, particularly within the army 
because the assets that it would have relied on simply didn't exist. Uh, and there, and of course, we, we weren't actually fighting in, in, during the Cold War anyway, so there, there, there was less demand for it. Once we got into high-intensity operations, as we did in Bosnia and Kosovo and then in Afghanistan, the need for intelligence became more, much more apparent. Uh, commanders in the field began to realize they couldn't operate blindly, and uh, they began to demand more, uh, more information. And uh, fortunately, we developed capabilities that allowed them to, uh, uh, to use and employ intelligence very well. Uh, not in every case, of course. Not every operation was a success. But we had probably more successes than we had failures. And uh, those, were, those operations were driven by good intelligence. And uh, so that, it made a difference on the ground. And, it, and that, it becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you've got good intelligence, you want more. Uh, and uh, and uh, when you demand more, you, in a sense, you demand more of the system and the system is, is going to respond to, uh, for you as best it can, because even in Afghanistan, the assets were limited. But it became sort of a rule of thumb that you, you never went anywhere without uh, taking into account the intelligence picture. Uh, so it really moved from the end of the Cold War, it moved from the margins of, an, of operational planning to this, a central place in operational planning. Well, I think, David, that that's an ideal point uh, at which to end our conversation. And so I'd really like to thank you for joining us today and providing your insights into the evolution of Canadian military intelligence uh, from the FLQ crisis to the war in Afghanistan. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. My guest today was David Charters. His book, Canadian Military Intelligence, Operations and Evolution from the October Crisis to the War in Afghanistan, was published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member to the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. And you can also send us an email at info at champlainsociety.ca. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at Master University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on February the 21st, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. <laughs>